Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Next week at 5 o'clock, down on the near southeast side of Indianapolis, will be the particularization service for Clearnote Church in Indy. Uh, This is the time when a new church plant finally has elders, and so it can call itself a church because it's finally able to discipline its members. It's not the way we normally think of what makes a church a church, but that's actually what it is. And so we're asking all of you to go up next week and celebrate this wonderful occasion. Uh, It may be that you have trouble understanding what that church is up there and This will be a wonderful opportunity for you to see them and for you to give them strength as they set out to testify to the Lord up there. Now, um, before we read our scripture this morning, every single week when I see all the empty seats here, it discourages me. And the reason is, and I don't know how to say this because it, it never sounds good. And, you know, you always have to be concerned about how you sound. You know, you ever been in a restaurant where you, there's a woman talking and she, you, you think to yourself, she doesn't know how she sounds. I had that recently. I thought it would be nice to go and explain to her how she sounds. <laughs> so I'm very aware of how I sound. But listen. Listen. You think about how constant in Jesus' parables is the emphasis on uh, warning. I mean, it's just everywhere, right? Jesus never stops warning us, right? You realize this. Then you ask yourself the question, in all of the religious things being done in Bloomington this morning, all the religious things being done in Bloomington this morning, How many of them do you think could be characterized as warning? Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Another way of saying it is, in all the religious work of America today, how much of it do you think is aimed at killing presumption? Now, if you're honest, you know that it's a tiny part of the religious work of America. The vast majority of it is work that's aimed at encouraging what is known as complacency. Right? And so it's so important if you care about people that you bring them in a church where they will be warned. And so why does that sound bad? Well, it sounds bad because it's like, well, Tim, are you saying that this church is better than other churches? Yes. Yes. And so every single time I go out from here, like this last week, I went up to Hillsdale College. When I speak to the students at Hillsdale's College, what do I do? I tell them to find a church that will warn them. I don't tell them to drive to Bloomington. I wish that everywhere on every street corner were churches that warn people. But knowing the condition of the churches in Bloomington, I want you, if you love the people in your neighborhood that you work with, I want you to bring them under the warning. And if you want it to not be about me, just kill me. I'll be gone, but I'll still say it from the grave. And then nobody can encourage, can accuse me of being a cultist. <laughs> so go ahead, shoot me. I'll be gone, but you'll still hear me. <laughs> and I'll say Bring people under the preaching of the word. I have no hesitation in telling you. Bring them under the preaching of anybody that gets in this pulpit at the invitation of the elders. Do you understand that? People must be warned. Now, why do I say that? Well, stand as we read the word. Because we'll listen to Jesus today as, as we have been doing in the parables. This time, this is uh, Matthew, the 25th chapter, verses 1 to 13. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out 
to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil and flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast and the door was shut. Later, the other versions also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then this is Jesus' warning coming out of the story. He says, be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so this is the, um, this is the warning of Christ against complacency. And um, there are three words that begin with a C that every postmodern, everyone living in our culture should know. One is uh, conniving, one is complicity, and one is, what was it? Complacency. Conniving, complicity, and complacency. Now, conniving is where... uh, you have a little boy, and this is one of my grandsons, and he says to his father, Papa, uh, don't you think Mama would like some ice cream? <laughs> That's conniving. All right. What is complicity? Complicity is if the father acts like he's a fool and says to the son, Well, yes, son, I do think your mother would love some ice cream, so shall we have some ice cream? You know, he's acting like he doesn't know that the son's just being devious and manipulating him, you know? And so he becomes complicit in the sin of his son. He acts as if he doesn't see it, he goes along with it, but since he's not the one that's initiating it, he feels self-righteous, right? You see that? And that's how all of us sin today. None of us have the faith to sin boldly, as Luther says. But we sin by half measures, you know, acting as if we don't know what we're doing, right? Right? That's me, even if it isn't you. And then what is complacency? Complacency is where we simply um, have our highest aspiration somewhere in between good and bad, all right, and that's complacency. So, for instance, this is the reason I, I hate Christianity today. As I used to hate Time magazine. I would describe Time magazine as a magazine where on any policy issue it says some idiots on this side have this to say, and then other idiots on this side have this to say, and those of us who are world-weary and wise, are in the middle where nobody can accuse us of anything. Huh? You're wondering what time is? No. Did I say something wrong? (laughs) Time. (laughs) Good point. So Christianity Today does that with all kinds of biblical issues. Christianity Today will say, well, the wacko liberals in the PCUSA and the mainline denomination say this, you know, or the people in Washington, D.C., or Walt Disney, or whatever, you know. The people over there say this. And then, you know, like um, John MacArthur, you know, or what's the name of the guy that just died? Fred Phelps, you know, they say this, but here in Wheaton, 
where we are world-weary and therefore have discovered the via media, the middle way. This is the path of true biblical wisdom. And so in Christianity Today, on issue after issue after issue after issue, what you discover is the, the middle path that avoids both extremes. And I hate that. Why? Because it just confirms everything that's wicked about our culture. Our culture thinks that if we avoid the two extremes, that that's godliness. And it's not godliness. There's nothing about this story that Jesus just told that encourages the via media, the middle way, the, the mainstream. If you, every time you think that the mainstream, the, the middle path, is what is true Christianity, would you please remember where the mainstream always was in the wilderness under Moses? <laughs> Are you with me? Democracy did not work as the children of Israel went through the wilderness. You always know where all the people voted, and it was never right. All right? Democracy is a method of self-government that avoids certain extremes, you know, but here's the problem with complacency in the middle. The problem is the middle always changes. Come on, people, do you really have to wait until you're 60 to learn this? It's incomprehensible, the wickedness that I see today that would never have been fathomable to me when I was a child in this country. And so if you've been carefully calculating where to stand in the middle to avoid the two extremes, you have become wacko wicked in our culture in the last 60 years. And of course, that's what we are. That's how you end up with World Vision this last week issuing a policy that says that they're now going to allow their employees to have homosexual marriages. And it's like, what? What? And then, I mean, you know, that's bad enough, but then they announce that this does not mean that they've changed their position on homosexuality. And I'm going, dude, I mean, I mean, could anybody, anybody buy that except people that have paid money to World Vision so that they can feel like they're religious? And they have a lot invested to believe it. And so this is the reason why I am an evangelical and I hate evangelicalism. I remember what it is. And evangelicalism is the doctrine that unless we are born again, we will not inherit the kingdom of God. And evangelicalism is the doctrine that we are born again by placing our faith in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ who turned aside the wrath of his Father against all ungodliness. And evangelicalism says that every single word of Scripture is true. Evangelicalism is wacko extreme. And it never settles. And it never tries to put itself halfway in between the two opposites. Evangelicalism believes in the holiness of God. Evangelicalism believes that there is none righteous, no, not one. Do you see? And so it's the habit of Satan to always try to redefine things in such a way that you take your eyes off God and off his word and off his son and off his holiness and you look to the left and you look to the right and you feel comfortable in the middle. Jesus is not doing that in this parable. Can you all admit that? Jesus is not interested in confirming you in your complacency. Jesus is not interested in making you feel like your presumption is actually religious. Okay? Why does Jesus do this? Is it because he is a, a sadist? Is it because he woke up with dyspepsia? A sour stomach? And took some antacid? Is it because Jesus was sick and tired of being despised and persecuted and decided he'd take it out on his disciples by giving them some of the medicine he was swallowing all the time? 
Is it because Jesus had a jaundiced view of man? No, it's why. It's because Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, right? And where does the Bible tell you that Jesus loves you? Most particularly, where does it tell you that? Right where Jesus warns you. That's not something that is an add-on to his love. That's the place where a postmodern man most particularly knows that Jesus loves him. Because the whole rest of your life, you get flattered. You know? The State of the Union address tells you that, that you know, the government should give you your drugs. I was listening this last week to some ditz brain on the radio. And the ditz brain told us that the internet was a basic human right. It's like, what? So like the pornography of the internet, is that a basic right too? Everywhere you go, you're being flattered. You're being told that you're all right, you know? You're being, you, you know, if you can't write, then you don't have to take the essay portion of the SAT. <laughs> you know? You give a bad grade at the university today. You know, Jurgen was here, he was telling me, we went in back, when he went back to Bonn as the vice rector of the University of Bonn, he said, I have a letter waiting for me on the desk. It's from the governor of our state, and the governor is telling us that we have to lift our grades at the University of Bonn, and we have to lower our admission standards because the university belongs to the people. This is postmodernism. And so many of you who have no business being in higher education because you aren't educated, let alone higher, <laughs> are persevering at Indiana University. And you might actually get, what do they call those Latin things? You might get, uh, yeah, yeah, what is it called? You might get to graduate, uh, yeah, yeah, that stuff. You can tell I never got it. <laughs> now, if you love your soul and if you love God, you must realize that you are most loved by Jesus when he warns you against complacency. Okay? Then he loves you. Because all of us tend to complacency. All of us are lazy, especially in spiritual matters, because all of us hate to repent. Without the gift of the Holy Spirit, there's not one man, one woman who would ever repent. It's completely against our nature. And so Jesus tells a little story, and it's just a little story. And here's the little story. There's a certain man who gets betrothed to a woman. Betrothal was roughly analogous to what uh, our engagement period is. It was a little more intense. Um, and they had the sense back then to make betrothal more a matter of the parents than the man and the woman. So the beginning of the betrothal was really the striking of a contract between the parents of the bride and the parents of the groom. Now, they would not normally make a contract unless the man and the woman loved each other. But nobody was stupid enough to think that love conquers all. And that's the reason marriage is a contract, because when what we think of as love dies, you still have the contract, right? And so this had been struck. The contract had been struck. The parents on one side had agreed with the parents on the other, the man and the woman had agreed. You would never have a marriage where the man and the woman did not agree that they would get married. And now we're in, the pa we're in the period of time in between the striking of that contract called betrothal then and the consummation of the contract, which was uh, physical intimacy. All right? They would not have it in the interim period. That was what made the wedding special. All right? And so... Back then, they had, they had, uh, they had uh, bridesmaids, all right? And the bridesmaids 
purpose was to wait for the bridegroom. You can imagine, if this was how we did it today, <laughs> bride, the bridesmaids would go to the bridegroom's house and, 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 and capture him and bring him to the bride, you know. I am woman, hear me roar, you know. Well, back then, women were feminine. I mean, you know, you don't really think of this, right? But did you notice that Jesus told the story in such a way that conformed to God's order of creation, that the woman was the man's helpmate? And so the bridesmaids actually have the feminine deference to wait for the bridegroom, (laughs) okay? You don't have to pay for that one. (laughs) Okay. So they wait, and all of a sudden, the bridegroom shows up. Now, what was their job? Well, their job was to come out, meet the bridegroom, and escort him to the bride, to the bridal chamber, where they would make love. It was a wonderful occasion. It was so exciting. Everybody had waited for the consummation, right? And so what the Bible tells us is that when the bride groom showed up, what was going on? Well, that they had fallen asleep, all right? Now, why had they fallen asleep? Just a second, let me get the text. Um, It says, they took their lamps, verse 1, and went out to meet the bridegroom, and five of them were foolish, five were prudent. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the prudent took oil in flasks along with the lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. All right. So the bridegroom took a while to show up, and while he was taking a while to show up, all of the bride, uh, bridal party fell asleep. All right. All the virgins, all the bridesmaids. And um, so you ask yourself the question, what does this sleep mean? You know, if, if it has a purpose in the story, what's the purpose of it? Well, probably the, most, the, the central reason that Jesus talks about them being asleep is because uh, it is taking Jesus, our bridegroom, a long time to come back, isn't it? It's now been how many years? It's been 2,000 years. And so... When there's a long period of time of anticipation, what happens? Well, you know the proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick. And so what happened was all of them began to grow weary of waiting. Okay? Matthew Henry says that the purpose of this delay is because... It is the kindness of God and because we should learn patience. So delay is an opportunity for the kindness of God to be shown that he's patient and it's a time for our patience to be exercised. Isn't that sweet? It's God's kindness because um, the minute the door of the ark is shut, It is over. Do you understand that? And so the longer that door to the ark is open, the more the kindness of God does what? Come on, Romans, what does it do? The kindness of God leads us to repentance. That's what Romans says. In John 14, 2, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And that creates anticipation in, it, in us, doesn't it? In Acts 1:11, the disciples were standing after Jesus' ascension into heaven. 
And the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Revelation 22.20, he who testifies these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Revelation 19.9, he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so, again and again and again, in Scripture, we see the theme of Jesus being our bridegroom, we are the bride, he is our bridegroom. This is the whole meaning of the Old Testament book of Hosea, where Hosea marries an unfaithful wife, and that's a picture of God's covenant people. Our hearts are always straying, and God has given us his son as our bridegroom. God has appointed a certain number of souls in this world who belong to his son. And in the conglomerate, they're the bride of Christ. Jesus died for his bride. And so we are always to have our hearts caught up looking for the coming of our bridegroom. And he will come, and when he comes, there will be no more humility the next time. It won't be out back in the pasture in a little cave in a manger. This next time, he will come with a shout with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and every eye will see him. When he comes, the door will be closed. The door will be closed. The ark of God's salvation in this life is the church. And so long as we devote ourselves to the means of grace, means could be called tool, the tools of grace, the instruments of grace, we are preparing ourselves for his appearance. And with the use of the means of grace, the tools, the methods, the instruments of grace, our hearts store oil. What is the oil? Well, the oil is the grace of God in our lives. It's the work of God in our lives. It's the fruit of God in our lives. Really, the oil is the kingdom of heaven. All right? And so Jesus is telling this story, and he shows us that all of the virgins fall asleep. Now, um, there is a discussion by various students of Scripture about what that means to fall asleep. Calvin says it means that before the second coming of Christ, we will all fall asleep. The valley of the shadow of death, that many of us will, in coming days, uh, June Canfield just recently, that she fell asleep. The people in the Corinthian church, they fell asleep, right? And so sleep stands for death in the interim before the second coming of Christ. Whatever it is, when the bridegroom comes and you understand that if you fall asleep, you die, then you meet the bridegroom. At that moment, there is a full stop placed at the end of your sentence. Do you understand me? It's not a semicolon. It's not an M dash. It's not a comma. It's not uh, an ellipsis. It's dot, and you're done. Jesus is not... Um, flattering you about this. He's not telling you that it's okay to hedge your bets. He's not telling you that it's okay to keep all your options open. Jesus is telling you that quickly he will return, whether to you individually through death, through an accident, through a heart attack, through uh, ulcer bleeding, and a bleeding ul- whatever it is, you will die, you will face God. And he's making it absolutely clear to you that when the bridegroom comes for you, that there is a full stop, you're done, and you will hit the judgment, and you will either have a lamp that has a bottle of oil, or you will be without oil. Now notice, all the virgins have torches, lamps. All of them have lamps. 
Notice all their lamps are burning. So we're dealing with people who are religious and Christian. You understand that. Most of Jesus' warnings don't have to do with the wicked because the wicked are wicked. They have to do with the religious people who are very much in play. You, You understand, in play, okay? And so what are these lamps? Well, if you've been to a museum, you've seen some of the lamps from the ancient world. They're these little tiny clay things about that big, you know, and the little dinky thing that you sort of grab them like this, like a, like a bone china teacup, you know, and you carry them as you go down the street. Well, it's ridiculous. That's not what they are. Because what light is that going to give when the bridegroom comes and you're going down the road in a procession, you know? No. These lamps that they're referring to are a big piece of wood, and at the end of the wood is either uh, rags or uh, uh, reeds, you know, something that can be permeated with oil and gives a huge light, right? And so they burn a lot of oil. And so when the bridegroom comes, they wake up and say, here comes the bridegroom, and everybody knows that their lamp is supposed to be burning. Nobody has any any notion that it doesn't matter whether or not they have a lamp, right? Nobody's talking about corporate salvation here. (laughs) Nobody's talking about the objectivity of the covenant and and the community of baptized souls who together are whoop, 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 whoop. Nope. Do you, do you have a lamp and do you have oil, right? Now, I'm all in favor of the church. I'm all in favor of baptism. I'm all in favor of looking when we come into worship at all the assembled around us and getting strength and faith from the corporate assembly. I'm in favor of that. But listen, when the bridegroom comes, come on, you stand before him with your lamp. And you either have oil or you don't. Do you understand this? This is not me saying this. This is Jesus saying. What did Jesus say? What does it mean for them to have oil? It means that they'll be lit, right? They'll be lit. Are you lit? I often say to those of you on the campus of IU, you should always be self-immolating. You should always be pouring oil over your head and then lighting it on fire. And you say, but that'll burn me up. And I say, that's the point. That's the point. Here's what Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. What percent of those who claim to be Christian on the campus of IU do you think we should throw out and trample underfoot? Are you any any use to Jesus on the campus of IU? Any use? You know how I say that a preacher should be, right, useful. Well, certainly, if you're on the campus of IU, you should be useful, right? Then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And of course, the point to make there is so many of those who claim to be Christians on the campus of IU are not a city on a hill. You know how all this hand-wringing is going on everywhere today about how American exceptionalism is wrong. You know, everybody's repenting of American exceptionalism. In fact, that's a central principle of our current president's regime. He is absolutely opposed to American exceptionalism. Now, I'm not talking about taking Afghanistan, right? Y'all know that. I'm not talking about protecting our oil reserves, right? Y'all know that, right? I'm talking about the fact that when our country was founded, what was it? Everybody that founded our country spoke and thought of it as what? A city set on a hill. Why? Because we were going to own all the the oil of the world? Because we started the internet? No, it was because we belonged to God. And there was only one true God. And we were his slaves. And we would freely worship him here in a way we couldn't in the old land. 
Now we think that the only spiritual preachers we can get have to come from the old land. You know? In a few years when this church is rich and famous, you're going to hire a British accent to preach to you. (laughs) You are the light of the world, says Jesus. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. And then he says this, and he doesn't say it, he commands it. He says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so this is the light. And this is a theme. In Philippians, we read chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, So that in the day of Christ, I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. The Apostle Paul says to the Philippians, hey, if you guys will light yourselves on fire, and if you'll live for the glory of God, if you'll be righteous, then I won't have run in vain. He's a preacher. Come on, you know, make me productive. Show me fruit from my work. You know, that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. And what's the fruit? It's light. It's you being lighty. It's you getting that stupid bushel basket off your head. It's you stopping mimicking all the inanities of postmodernism. You know, equality, marriage equality. You know? Now, why do I bring up homosexuality and homosexual marriage? It's, I wish I didn't have to, but it's the, everybody in the world's talking about it, and so I think maybe we should occasionally mention it. Because I think God has something to say about it. Right? Now, listen. Oil is light. Oil sustains light. Oil is the grace of the Holy Spirit working in our hearts. Oil is cultivated by you sitting under my preaching right now. Oil is cultivated by prayer, by the Lord's Supper, by baptism, by the singing of praise, by fellowship. Oil is cultivated by you eating a roll and buttering it next to another Christian after church this morning. Fellowship, house to house. All these things are the ways that we put oil in this uh, jar. And then when we hold up our flame, we have oil to replenish it as it burns. And burn it will. And we'll need replenishing. It's it's very tiring and discouraging to be light today, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Now, let's keep going. Behold, the bridegroom come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Now, you know how when you read the Bible, you should always argue with the Bible. Do you know that? Always argue with the Bible. Because if you don't read the Bible and argue with it as you read it, you're not being honest and you're not reading what's in front of you. You are sinful, therefore when you come to a perfect book, you should always despise what it's saying to you. And until you recognize that you despise what it's saying to you, you won't begin to grow. Does this make sense? Imagine somebody going up to barbells and and not actually picking them up, but just sort of going through the motion of picking them up, you know? And that's what you reading where, you know, I was talking to this guy up in Toledo this last week, I was supposed to teach them the biography of Jonathan Edwards and I kept asking questions and coming up with nothing and afterwards I said to him, so what on earth was going on? And he said, well, well, I read 250 pages earlier today. Oh, come on. 250 pages earlier today. 
How are you going to get anything out of a book that you read 250 pages earlier today? And yet that's how many of us read the Bible. You know, we're so focused on getting our Bible portion for the day done that we don't argue with it. So would you please join me in arguing with Jesus here? Because you don't honor him until you argue with him. It's just like marriage. Don't you realize there's no good marriage where there isn't fighting? For heaven's sakes, you have to fight with your spouse if you're going to be bonded to him. Yeah, yeah, Esther knows. (laughs) And so let's argue with Jesus here. Look at what he actually says and argue with him. He says, the foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going on. And every single one of us at this point should say to ourselves, that's an entirely reasonable request. I mean, for all we know, some of them had put more rags than others at the top of their lamp. And so they went through their oil quicker. We don't know why they didn't have oil. It might have been that some of them gave much more light to everybody because they had so many rags at the top of their thing that they ran out of oil. And after all, from each... To each, from each according to their ability, to each according to their... And if this isn't democracy, I don't know what is. I mean, this is the relentless theme of every political speech and article you've ever read in your life. From each according to his ability, to each according to his need, right? And so all this, these, these foolish virgins are doing is asking the prudent ones to not think that their prudence belongs to them. It's a gift from God. And so the, the results of their prudence should be owned by everyone. And then look what Jesus says. The foolish said to the prudent, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, no, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Now Jesus, when he tells that, he is not saying that the wise, the prudent virgins were sinful. This is not sinful on their part. Jesus says they're prudent. If you think about your life and you think about how many ways you benefit from other Christians, the list is endless, isn't it? You think about your your grandmother and your mother's prayers, your father's prayers. You think about the teaching of your Sunday school teachers. You think about preaching. You think about prayers. You think about fellowship. You think about certain friends you have who have such faith. And it's unbelievable what God accomplishes in us through other people. But please notice that Jesus is saying that when the bridegroom comes, it's what you have. And he has not arranged a scheme whereby there can be a transfer of wealth. Do you you all understand this? It's very hard to understand this today when we've been taught that the transfer of wealth is a basic right. But God won't allow it. Do you understand this? And so I want you to argue with Jesus and I want you to realize that Jesus is telling you the truth and that the truth is not subject to the vote of the National Education Association. In other words, you look at American political process, it's unbelievable how corrupt it is. It would always lead you to not see God's truth. Because the transfer of wealth is central to any notion of piety in the public square today. But God will not allow a transfer of wealth. He won't allow it. 
Am I saying that there ought never to be sharing between people in this church where some of us give money to others of us and others of us take it? No, we do that all the time in this church. I'm not against the transfer of wealth. But there can be no transfer of wealth when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. Now, when you hear me say that, when I tell you that God will examine the fruit of the Spirit in your life at the judgment. None of you are arguing with me, right? You all have a basic sense that that's true. You see it comes from the story. You see Jesus told the story, and you're all on board with that, right? Okay, everybody on board with that. All right. Then would you explain to me how for 2,000 years, we have managed to manufacture ways to deny this truth. And you say, well, what do you mean? And I say, well, like, for instance, the Roman Catholic Church's works of supererogation, the treasury of merit, and purgatory. And you say, well, what are those things? Well, here's what those things are. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that some people are so good that they have superfluous good. That they have good beyond their soul's need. They don't merit that much good. They have enough merit on their own that they're spinning off merit that other people can use. This is Orthodox Roman Roman Catholic doctrine. And that superfluous merit that they spin off is what's called in the Roman Catholic Church works of supererogation. Works of supererogation. Furthermore, they teach, this is Orthodox Roman Catholicism, that that, those works, those extra works that this person doesn't need, but this person spins off, those works accrue to Rome. They are put into what Rome calls the treasury of merit. All right? And furthermore, the Pope and the hierarchy of the church have the freedom given them by God to sell the treasury of merit to those souls who have a paucity of merit, who have a lacking of oil. This is just Orthodox Roman Catholic doctrine. And so this man over here who's so good that he has extra merit... That merit works as supererogation, gets transferred to Rome. Rome puts it in its treasury of merit and then sells it to those of you who would otherwise be in a place called purgatory for a long time. This is just Orthodox Roman Catholic doctrine. Now, could you imagine a religious institution and doctrine that's more cataclysmically in opposition to what Jesus just said? Jesus says that when the door is shut, it's shut. Jesus says that nobody has an excess of merit. Jesus says that they say, no, we can't give you any of our oil. Jesus says that because of that, the foolish virgins will run away to try to get some merit, and then when they've bought some, they'll come back and they will find the door open, right? No. He says the door is shut. So how do you come up with works of supererogation, with the treasury of merit, with the purchase of indulgences, with the sale of masses for those of your loved ones who are in purgatory. How do you come up with this stuff? And then I ask you, is this not precisely what you would prefer to what Jesus said? Don't you think that, don't you think it would be nice for your children and your grandchildren to have a second chance? Listen, people. I'm up at Hillsdale this last week speaking to the student body, and I asked them, how many people here are converting to Roman Catholicism? A ton of them. Why? 
Well, Hillsdale is a certain sort of political conservatism. And if you're concerned about the direction of America, you are very thankful for many political theorists who are Roman Catholic. If you're concerned about the unborn, you're, you're very thankful for many medical ethics, ethicists who are Roman Catholics, many doctors who have witnessed against the killing of the unborn. If you like a certain kind of art, you're very thankful for the works of Michelangelo that the indulgences of Tetzel bought. But people, the Christian faith is not another way of giving you America back. God is true, though all men are liars. And if you study works of supererogation, if you study the treasury of merit, if you study the purchase of indulgences, if you study purgatory, can you please open your eyes and admit that this is not a religious system, it's a mercantile system. This is shopkeeping. Do you see this? I don't see how you can't see it. It really does matter whether the reformers were right and Rome was wrong. Because it seems to me that the whole system of Rome is set up in such a way as to eviscerate this parable told by our Lord of any meaning. Now, because you're postmodern, at this point you say to yourself, well, you know, that, that man up there probably, you know, he, he probably is anti-Catholic. You know, he's, he's like, you know. It's probably something within his breast. He's dyspeptic. You know, he has sour stomach. You know, and I say, oh, come on, please. Listen, your soul is so valuable that God purchased it with the blood of his own son. And your soul is so valuable that Jesus doesn't flatter you. It's so valuable that he warns you with the starkest of parables. And you can't escape the meaning. remember when my brother-in-law once said to me, you know, Tim, everybody's religious. And that's such a profound statement to make today. Everybody is religious. Christopher Hitchens was very religious in his hatred of God. Barack Obama is very religious in his promotion of sodomy. Justice Blackman was very religious in his approval of abortion. The argument isn't between those who are religious and those who aren't. The argument is between those who submit themselves to the word of God and to Jesus Christ and those who manipulate the words of Jesus Christ and his word to suit their sinful hearts. Those are the only two religions there are. You can call them by any name you want, but there are those who repent and believe this book, and there are those who refuse to repent, and so, like Jefferson, they snip, 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 and they twist, 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 and pretty soon you don't know whether you're coming or going. You know, the works of supererogation, treasury of merit, indulgences, and purgatory. And Jesus says what? And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and what? The door was shut. 
Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. That's the doctrine of works of supererogation, the treasury of merit, indulgences, and that's the doctrine of purgatory. The door is shut, okay? And so, my dear brothers and sisters, these are your choices. You either submit yourself to Jesus Christ and his word, or you twist it to suit your sinful desires. Okay? And you do have a free will. And the hour of decision is in front of you. And you will either go out while the door is open and try to get as much oil as you possibly can. You will be faithful in attending the means of grace. You will find a church, as I said to the Hillsdale people, and remember, they're way up there. It has nothing to do with me. I said to them, go out and find a church that has preaching at the center of its worship so that God's word takes precedence over the word of man. Then find preaching that always is pointing out your sin. Why? Well, how can you love the grace of God and the mercy of God? How can you love the blood of Christ unless you see your sin? (laughs) But once you see it, how precious is the blood of Jesus Christ? There's nothing else that will do. And so you find a church that is a true church where the preaching of God is the central act of worship, not baptism, not the Lord's Supper, not the liturgy, not the music, the preaching of God's word. And then you know that the preaching of God's word is biblical when it is always exposing your sin to you. Isn't that what Jesus does here in this parable? And then when it's with authority. When it's not like, you know, I wonder, I wonder, I mean, okay, come on. you know, I wonder whether, you know, and don't you, and sometimes, you know, listen, I'm using those gestures because I want you to see how seductive it is. I mean, it's kind of a joke with me, right? But that's the preaching of our world today, you know? It's kind of... You know? And listen, when Jesus preached, do you remember what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us, first of all, that he preached. Why? Because he looked at the people and he had... Remember? He had compassion on them. And why? They were sheep without a shepherd. (laughs) And then he preached, and when he got done preaching, you remember what was constantly said about Jesus preaching. What they said was that he preached with authority and not like their scribes and Pharisees. He had authority. And so, once again, I know how that sounds, (laughs) you know. There goes Tim again. It's a cult. And I say, well, what do you want me to do? You know, you're putting me in a box. Come on. What am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to be like Jesus, right? And you say, oh, boy, you really are sick. And I say, well, I don't mean that I'm like him. I just mean that I'm supposed to fail in that direction. So therefore, I must need to make the authority of the word of God preached clear. And now it's on you. Now we're done with me. Now you leave and you decide whether you heard Jesus and you're going to put oil in your bottle. And it's so frustrating because, you know, what I wish is that there were a train car that I could say all, to all of you right now, okay, now here's the train car. Now if you come forward, you'll be safe and you'll have oil in your lamp, you know? And that's what all the old altar calls were, you know? You know, if you saw your son come up forward and at the altar call, then he's on the car and he's safe, you know? But we, we don't do that. You leave here, you have free will, and you make a decision this day who you will serve. And if you love Jesus, then 
You put oil in your lamp. You can't help it. And all of a sudden, you start burning brightly. It will cause problems when you go home for vacation. Your parents will think you're wacko and say you belong to a cult. But hey, I've been there, done that. You know, so what? Join the club. You know what a cult is, and I realized this long before I ever became a minister of the word. I learned this by listening very closely to Martin Marty, who was the dean of church historians in America at University of Chicago. And he did this huge thing called the Fundamentalism Project. Okay? And I got thinking about Martin Marty. My dad knew him. I'd met him. And I thought, you know what fundamentalism and and, and cults are today? The way they use the words, you know what it is? It's anybody who takes eternity seriously. Now, if you will remember my definition and apply it, every time you hear the word cult, every time you hear the word fundamentalism, you'll find that it works perfectly. And so I ask you, is Jesus telling you to take eternity seriously? And there's no way you can have read this parable without realizing that Jesus said, is appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. The whole world is entertaining itself with the closing of the door of the ark right now. It's just like, this can be your entertainment, but then when a preacher says it to you, you say he's a fundamentalist and this is a cult? Well, I'm glad we get to end by singing, aren't you? Singing does my heart good. So musicians, sons of Asaph, come and lead us, would you please?